Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Matek. How are you, Katie? I'm good. I'm a little sore. I worked out, which I apparently don't do enough, because if I did, I probably wouldn't feel this sore. But yeah, legs are very sore. Hurts to walk. Mm. You know, the saying just came to me. I just, I just invented, and it goes, no pain, no gain. It's what do you think? I like it. I think it's going to stick. I think you're going to find now that you put this out there. I think we're going to find it that it it has a lot of popularity and staying power. Yeah, very sticky. You're welcome, world. Again, you tune into to useful idiots. Why? Not just for your politics, not just for your pop culture, occasional river based adventure stories, but also for great idioms and expressions that we create on demand on site in real time. That's right. That's right. Woo. Great show for you today. Lindsay Snell, journalist, going to provide you with a perspective that is never really um, allowed to be in mainstream media. That's going to be great. Yeah, that's a very cool interview that we're very excited to be hosting with Lindsay Snell, a a real rare independent journalist who gets on the ground in a number of conflict zones, including Ukraine. So it's very exciting to hear what she has to say. Yeah. And make sure you become a Substack supporter at usefulidiots.substack.com because the extended interview with her is really fascinating. And she talks about how her position on Syria changed and how she was kidnapped. And it's very uh, informative. So that's usefulidiots.substack.com. All right. Should we get to our four? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So just going to talk about Joe Manchin. Um, uh, reading at Democracy Now! Senator Joe Manchin's office said Monday the conservative West Virginia Democrat has secured a promise from party leaders and the White House to complete a highly contested gas pipeline. In 2020, construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline was halted by a federal court after activists argued its construction violates environmental laws and could pose catastrophic threats to nearly 1,000 streams and wetlands. The deal to complete the pipeline came as Senator Manchin ended months of opposition to President Biden's legislative agenda and agreed to support a scaled-down bill to combat the climate crisis. So one step ahead, two steps backwards. This is how you get Joe Manchin on board with something. Uh, you give him a, uh, you know, you give him a treat, and the treat is uh, drilling, constructing pipelines. The treat is uh, getting to ruin the planet. So we're so happy that he's on board. What a hero! What a victory for the Democrats! Yeah. So it's both a climate bill and a climate polluting bill. Yeah, exactly. Everyone gets what they. Everyone gets something. Everyone wins. Yeah, especially yeah. the especially Mother Nature. So that's the Democrats suck. And that's Democrats suck because Joe Biden sucks and the White House sucks for not being able to whip him into agreeing to this without this kind of sweetheart deal for gas. Speaking of lawmakers who suck, let's go to Lindsey Graham for this week's edition of Republicans Suck. Four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. So Secretary Blinken, I didn't think there was an issue under the sun that would get 100 votes. We found it. Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. So you know how, Katie, you know, people like myself will say that the U.S. policy in Ukraine is to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian? Mm-hmm. We'll get criticized for saying that. Well, look, here is Lindsey Graham saying the exact same thing that he's saying four months in. He's liking how things are going. And he says that as long as the U.S. arms Ukraine, they will fight to the last person. 
yes, Lindsey Graham, you're exactly right. The difference is, is that some people, myself included, don't think it's ethical or wise to use Ukraine to fight Russia to the last person. He feels differently. And here he is bragging about it. That is wonderful. It is truly um, heartwarming to see that kind of bipartisan uh, bloodlust. Yes. Yes. And uh, look, on this point, let me shout out Matt Duss, who is an advisor to Bernie Sanders, who I like criticizing because Ryan Grimm, our guest, told us that Matt Duss has played a very influential role on Capitol Hill in getting progressives to support the Ukraine proxy war. And Matt Duss has written an article that attacks people like myself for being critical of the Ukraine proxy war. And in the article, he said that it's disingenuous to say that we're using uh, Ukraine to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And in response to that, I'll say, no, it's actually what U.S. warmongers and the people driving this policy, like Lindsey Graham, openly admit, as Lindsey Graham just did. There you go. I'm sure you're unhappy to be right. <laughs> well, I am unhappy to be right overall for humanity because it's Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I wasn't actually, that actually wasn't a dig at you for being. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. actually speaking to your higher humanity. Your higher, your, to your spirit, well, I, higher I spirit, that. yeah. I appreciate yeah, your that. higher and, power, yeah. And because Republicans lack that same humanity, that is why they suck. Right. And to be fair, this is one of those Republicans and Democrats suck, but it's but they get credit for that. That one. absolutely. But so yeah. many of them are that too. You know, again, it speaks to the great postpartisanship of uh, ruining the planet through plundering its uh, resources or uh, war, endless war. So, shout out to both parties. Honestly, at the end of the day, afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen. So I got an interesting, isn't that weird? This uh, great story is coming from the New York Post. Hitler's gold watch with initials AH swastika sells for 1.1 million. I guess it's a little below the New York Post even to try to do. I was expecting some puns from the New York Post, honestly. But I guess when you're talking about Hitler paraphernalia, it's a little gauche to do that. Adolf Hitler's personalized watch just sold for 1.1 million amid widespread backlash. Alexander Historical Auctions in Chesapeake City, Maryland, has estimated the value of the gold Andrea Huber timepiece at between $2 million and $4 million. Describing it complete with its infamous owner's initial AH and an engraved swastika as a World War II relic of historic proportions. But Jewish leaders and others condemned the auction of the wristwatch, saying the timepiece had little to no historical value. Then they show a tweet from Aviva Klompas reading, Utterly disgusting. A Maryland auction house auctioned off Hitler's watch, thereby profiting off one of the darkest periods in modern Jewish history. Let's be clear, selling Nazi paraphernalia glorifies genocidal murderer. You know, small edit there. That was the darkest period in modern Jewish history, hands down. It's not one of the darkest periods. Yeah, probably, yeah. That's the Although, darkest. Right. No, there were no, a lot no, of pogroms, but yeah, that's true, yeah. The auction house responded to critics by arguing at the sale that the sale was aimed at preserving a piece of history. It is a little bit weird. You should know that this this uh, Alexander Historical Auctions uh, also peddled the German dictator's globe-shaped bar in 2020. 
So I guess they have a bit of an uh, expertise in this area. But what's a little bit weird is uh, that the person who who bought it is actually a European Jew. He's anonymous, but he's a European Jew, which makes it extra weird. It kind of complicates the ethics of the sale, I think. I don't know. Maybe not. But it's a problematic thing on a couple levels. I definitely wasn't happy to hear. Not the greatest thing. You know, you don't really necessarily want to perpetuate the idea that a European Jew shelled out tons of money for a, a watch. For the anti-Semites out there are going to be a little too happy about that. The auction house's president, Bill Panagoupoulos, uh, has been getting death threats over the sale. Um, and the timepiece was likely gifted to Hitler on April 20th, 1933, to mark his 44th birthday, which coincided with him being named an honorary citizen of Bavaria. The watch, was, was, which was commissioned by the Nazi party and assembled in Munich, features three dates, Hitler's birthday, the day he became chancellor of Germany, and when the Nazi party won the national election in March 1933. According to the auction house, a French soldier, Sergeant Robert Mignot, who was in the first unit to close in on Hitler in May 1945 at his Burstaschgaden mountain retreat, seized the watch as a spoil of war. He eventually resold the watch to his cousin, who then passed it down to his descendants. I mean, it would be nice if they gave it to some anti-Nazi peace-loving organization. That really would be the way to to do it, I think, to handle it with taste. What do you think? Yeah, give it to Russia. Give it to Russia. <laughs> That's a joke. That's oh, a joke. okay. Yeah, yeah. No, Thank I. You. Oh, uh, you mean for defeating the Nazis? That would be good. Yeah. Look, Hitler and profit just shouldn't go together. Right. Congratulations to this anonymous buyer on your new purchase and how yeah. it brings me happiness. Not sure what kind of, do you think he'll put it up like on his, like as a, on the mantle? Yeah. I mean, the problem with that is you have to explain every time someone comes over what that is. Right. You know, that's, maybe that's something you want to keep more low key. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe he just puts it under the his pillow. If you want to spend a million dollars on a watch, let alone Hitler's watch, then right. you must have some specific intent for it. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Maybe he just wants to own Hitler instead of owning right. Hitler. He gets to own his watch. Right. All right. So for isn't that terrible, we have another accessory that you can put on yourself and it comes uh, via the UK and the mirror woman furious after neighbor dumps insulting gift on her doorstep. Lots of households can relate to having noisy neighbors and barking dogs next door, but often people avoid confrontation to keep the peace. One dog owner was left shocked and insulted after someone mysteriously dumped a muzzle on her doorstep. Posting on a Facebook group, the anonymous woman ranted, whoever dumped this at my doorstep, can you come and collect it? My dog certainly doesn't need it. And if you're implying that my dog barks or bites, you are very mistaken. The only time he barks is if someone knocks on my door and this is very minimal. This seems a very rude course of action and perhaps you should reassess how you deal with problems that don't exist. That's dog shaming and dog owner shaming. Yeah, it really That's, is. Yeah. Thoughtful, though, to leave the muzzle in its packaging. This is a brand new dog muzzle. This is not secondhand. Right. That is but true. That's thoughtful. This is, you know, fresh product here. This right. isn't, for example, Hitler's used watch. This is a brand new dog right. muzzle. It's not like Hitler's used muzzle. No, exactly. Which it would have been helped the world to have one of those around, honestly. It would have. That'd be a great switch. Give uh, the muzzle to Hitler and the dog the watch. Yeah. 
yeah. puppy watch. Yeah, that would have been yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Well, it's also it's that's terrible for so many reasons. You got the shaming, but then also would be victim blaming. I mean, this, they're saying that the dog only barks when people come to the doors. That's a public safety issue. Yeah. Should the dog not be allowed to keep its owner safe? <laughs> right. Listen, Katie, basically what I'm drawing is whenever there's dog related content on usefulty, it's the lesson is it's not the dog's fault. Leave the dog no. alone. Leave the dog alone. Free the dog. Yeah. Don't, don't pup blame. Don't canine blame. Yeah. Canine phobia is a terrible thing. Yeah. Maybe it's because, okay, it may be because I have a special soft spot because my parents have a dog, Bodie, who yaps a lot because she's a Lhasa Apsa and they were bred to protect their uh, monks in monasteries. They were bred to make noise. So they have this kind of little Napoleon complex thing going on because they're very little. They're adorable. They're little small things. At the same time, they have very good hearing. So what was happening in the olden days is that they would hear an intruder or a bandit or whatever they would start barking and then these tibetan mastiff dogs outside the monastery would get ready to attack but you know evolution doesn't always work out that smoothly so now in modern day society you have these little lhasa apses walking around barking at huge dogs barking at noisy things like trucks motorcycles and bodhi at least like actually would if she weren't on her leash, she would run after them and try to attack them. And I, I, that would end up very poorly for Bodhi because she's a little dog and we're talking about a truck or a motorcycle or a huge dog. So maybe that is it. My question is, uh, given the, you know, intergenerational knowledge that we all carry from our ancestors, do you think that Bodhi thinks of you and your family as monks? Oh yeah, we're definitely monks. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that means, that means I, I could think of you as a monk as well, Katie. Yeah, you could. Yeah. You yeah. could call me the Dalai Lama. It's a plan. Well, anyway, that uh, rounds up uh, this week. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. <laughs> We're so excited to be talking to Lindsay Snell on today's Useful Idiots. She is a Murrow Award winning journalist, former documentary filmmaker, and she uh, just got back from doing some reporting in Ukraine. She's based in Munich. She does very brave reporting. She was actually kidnapped uh, in Syria while reporting. And, uh, you know, some one of the things that we will talk to Lindsay about is how much of a blackout there is when it comes to reporting on the difficulties faced by Ukrainian fighters and the foreign fighters who have come there. Obviously, as people know, the media, the Western media likes to present Ukraine as um, both needing more weapons, but also uh, being kind of like on track to winning on the path to victory her reporting undermines that. So obviously it's not allowed to get any sunlight. Yes, the Ukraine conflict has been totally whitewashed. And that's why reporters from the heart of NATO, like Lindsay, who go there on the ground and expose what's really going on, speak to the foreign fighters who are flocking to Ukraine and discovering that they're actually under-equipped and that there are neo-Nazis and fascists in the ranks of the Ukrainian forces. That is very inconvenient to the dominant narrative. And that's why voices like hers are so increasingly rare. And that's why we're, we're very fortunate to hear from her today and hear what she found when she went to Ukraine. Yeah. And Aaron, I want to just, uh, I was actually talking to a friend the other day who was like, I don't understand why are we doing what we're doing uh, or not doing what we're doing as in why are we not forcing, why are we not uh, facilitating negotiation and and using diplomacy in that region? And I was like, oh, it's because the West doesn't want it because of the arms industry, because of geostrategic interests. 
but I kind of was trying to break it down. And so, okay, the West, like Joe Biden wants to bleed Russia, right? We know that Lloyd Austin, the head of his pen of the Pentagon has said that. Then there's the arms industry that obviously wants to sell all these weapons and the arms industry uh, are big donors to both parties, right? But like, how does this happen on a more concrete level? Is it that they actually conspire? Is it that they don't have to conspire? It's just like goes without say that the arms industry is donating a lot to both political parties. How do you think this works? You know, about a month before Russia invaded Ukraine in February, I wrote an article at my Substack, masse.substack.com called The Ukraine Crisis Sponsored by US Hegemony and War Profiteers. And those are the two main interests that have been driving this crisis. I think the person who said it best is a guy named Carl Gershman, who was the uh, former head of the National Endowment for Democracy. It's a U.S. government funded organization that foments regime change and destabilization around the world in states that the U.S. wants to control. And he called Ukraine in the fall of 2013. He said that Ukraine is, quote, the biggest prize. And what he meant by that was that if the U.S. can pull Ukraine into its orbit, then that can be used to undermine Russia because Ukraine has such geostrategic importance to Russia and shares such deep historical ties. There are millions of people inside Ukraine who speak Russian and who share a cultural and family tie to Russia. And so bringing Ukraine firmly into the U.S.-led order would seriously weaken Russia to the point where Gershman said, Vladimir Putin might be overthrown. And that has essentially been the U.S. policy. Uh, the U.S. Try, has been trying to bring Ukraine into NATO for a long time. They enshrined that as policy in 2008, even though the current director of the CIA, William Burns, warned that this policy could lead to war. U.S. policymakers have pursued it because they don't care about averting war. They want to do anything that can weaken Russia. So using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia, trying to bring it into NATO, if that can happen, then the U.S. could place weapons there that could threaten Russia and really just increase U.S. dominance. And this happens to comport beautifully with the interests of war profiteers in Washington who make a lot of money off of NATO expansion and the conflicts that it causes. And so it's just this great symbiotic relationship where the more U.S. He the more U.S. He hegemonic interests are pursued, the more the war industry profits. And that's why whenever there's lobbying to expand, or whenever there's a Senate vote to expand NATO, as we've just seen, the weapons industry spends a huge amount of money lobbying uh, Senate because it's so profitable for them because the more countries that come into NATO, the more countries have to meet, meet NATO standards and then spend more money on US-made weapons. So those are the two main interests, is US hegemony and war profiteering. That's the Western interests that are being defended in Ukraine. Not all this talk about protecting democracy and sovereignty two concepts the U.S. could care less about. Right. By the way, do we know how popular joining NATO is among uh, the Finnish and uh, Swedish people? Well, I think now it's gotten more popular. And people I speak to over there, you know, who are very sympathetic to my point of view, so they're, you know, they're biased in that sense. They think that there's been a huge lockdown on media discussion, and that is critical of basically subordinating their countries to US-led policy. And so it's made it very difficult to sort of uh, break the media blockade and break the state government line and show alternative points yeah. of view. So I do think actually you, you find increasing popular support 
inside these countries now. But what's interesting is in Ukraine for a long time, support for joining NATO was very low. And in fact, there's a former U.S. official who once wrote that the main obstacle to Ukraine joining NATO was Ukrainian popular opinion, which historically has been very below 50 percent uh, in terms of support for joining NATO. Now, that's changed in recent years. But again, that's a result of Ukraine being pulled into this proxy conflict with Russia being forced to pick sides and also a large part of the population of Ukraine being cut off. So these polls in Ukraine now don't anymore include Crimea and don't include the areas of the Donbass that rebelled against the U.S.-backed coup government in Ukraine. So right. it's a complicated picture there. But I do think even in Ukraine, support for joining NATO has grown. But historically, for a long time, it was pretty low. With Sweden and Finland, it's not going to be through referenda, right? This isn't like a direct representative dem democratic decision, whether they join. Oh, no, it's pretty much up to the U.S. The government's asked to join. There's no popular referendum in either of these countries to ratify that. And essentially, it comes down to whether the U.S. wants it or not. And the U.S. absolutely does. So unless someone like Turkey steps up to block it, it will happen. Anyway, so without any further ado, the very impressive, very important voice that is Lindsay Snell. Lindsay Snell, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How are you? We're good. So you recently came back from Ukraine and you wrote a dispatch called I Have a Chance to Kill Some Russians Interviews with Foreign Volunteers in Ukraine. Talk to us about who you spoke to in Ukraine and what they told you. We spoke to uh, around a dozen foreign volunteers in Ukraine, uh, mostly American, British, Canadian, uh, some Georgian, also a couple French. Um, yeah, just a variety of people who've gone and decided to volunteer in Ukraine. And why did they volunteer in Ukraine and what has been their experience since getting there? Almost all of them said that they felt compelled to help. They couldn't sit by and do nothing, basically. A lot of them were former military who seemed to really miss war. Um, one of them actually said that there's a romance to war and it makes you appreciate life and it's just sort of invigorating to, to fight, I guess. Um, and all of them said that they really want the chance to kill Russians. So that's the main reason that they're there. And I think there's an ego component also, obviously. Why do they want to kill Russians so badly? I really can't answer that. And they can't really answer that, except that, you know, Russia's evil, an evil empire. Russia wants to take over the world. So they just sort of repeat these things. This was a really amazing piece. And as you said, uh, there was, I, I was kind of surprised by how, uh, in some cases, honest the people were about how badly it's going. I was also surprised uh, by the quote that you referred to, Sean, I guess he's, these are all um, pseudonyms, right, to protect them, but a uh, Canadian who says, I think the volunteers are making a difference, at least some of us are, and war gives a new meaning to life. There's a romance to it. When you see that much death and destruction, you sit and appreciate the beauty of the simple things in life. Also, I have a chance to kill some Russians which was kind of an interesting, weird contrast, hearing him kind of wax poetic about the beauty of life and then ending on a note of how great it is to kill some Russians. He, he is Canadian. He's, I think, 30 years old, um, former veteran. We've been in Iraq and didn't really have much going on in Canada. And that's, that's the reality. So uh, he actually said, it, it's another war. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I miss war. That's the last time I felt like I really had a purpose. So, I mean, it's a... Uh, 
not really an altruistic reason to go to Ukraine. It's simply, it's a war. So he has a purpose now. He's fighting the Russians. Yeah, we're all searching for meaning in life, you know? Sure. And Aaron, Aaron can it. relate, especially because you're Canadian. So you get how boring it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yes. Uh, I chose a different path uh, to deal with my Canadian boredom, but hey, you know, no judgment. Lindsay, you also spoke to someone you identify as Steve. He's American and he was troubled by the presence of neo-Nazis around him. Can you talk about what he told you? He was shocked when he, he's a military trainer. So he was training, you know, uh, various Ukrainian battalions in Kiev and Lviv. And he said, when he first walked around, he saw, you know, SS logos and black suns and swastikas, and he couldn't believe it. And when he asked the, the translator to tell that it was an Azov battalion, he said, can you please tell them they have to cover these up and take, take off the patches? They just wouldn't, they flat out refused. And he said, you know, we're getting aid donations. If anyone sees these things, the aid donations will stop. They still didn't care. They really have no uh, qualms about sharing their, their neo-Nazi ideology, so. Well, that's where I think Steve is wrong because I think the people donating military equipment know full well they're, they're right. giving it to people who are proudly displaying Nazi insignia. They just don't care. So I think Steve was, I think, uh, <laughs> too uh, anxious there. But so what's your sense of the, uh, of the percentage or the amount of, of Nazis and fascists that are inside these armed forces right now in, in Ukraine? I think they actually did, you know, go to great lengths to try to cover it up because you'd see some Azov like billboards that were like half down. I mean, I've seen on Facebook where uh, local authorities are painting over Azov murals and they're getting really upset about that because, you know, they're painting over the Wolf's Angel or whatever. Um, so I think that they've actually gone to great lengths to try to cover it up and hide it. But um, any front line, you stop in a gas station, you'd, you'd, you'd see, you know, the, the red and black Bandera flag and Wolf's Angel and SS logos. I mean, it's it's rampant. It's absolutely rampant. Well, just to explain who Bandera is, Stefan Bandera is the founder of a uh, nationalist movement inside Ukraine. He's regarded by some as a hero, but he also collaborated with the Nazis and helped kill thousands and thousands of Jews and others uh, around the time of the Second World War. And he, according to many people in Ukraine, is a, is a hero. And we saw that interview with the um, mayor, a Ukrainian mayor who had his photo in the background, uh, who, sorry, had a portrait of him in the background. And um, some of the some, people like to, to bring up the fact that he himself was in a Nazi concentration camp as kind of proof that he didn't collaborate with Nazis, but Nazis just put people in concentration camps. It doesn't mean like they had a fight, I guess, a falling out, and they probably didn't like him because he was Ukrainian, but it doesn't mean he was some kind of anti-Nazi. He collaborated again after that, also after he was released from the concentration camp. So, wow, what a forgiving guy! <laughs> wow, we could all learn so much from Stepan Bandera. <laughs> Can you trace the steps of how you had this idea in the first place? How you got permission to go where you went? Like how you how you flew there? What the what kind of the process was like for you just doing this piece? So it's super easy for anyone from, a, from America, Canada, any European country to go to Ukraine. You basically just go up to the border and you walk across. So that part was easy. Um, you apply for credentials from the Ukrainian Armed Forces and it takes three or four weeks basically and they send it back to you in an email. And so that, that part's easy. Um, but actually we didn't have permission to talk to the foreign volunteers. We talked to one who was with this uh, a group called the Georgian National Legion, which is Georgians who've been there since 2014 basically. And, 
I guess they're officially under the Ukrainian military, but they're their own volunteer battalion, I guess. Um, but for the most part, uh, the International Legion, which is the official one that Zelensky announced right after the war started, uh, basically stopped all media interviews that they didn't supervise as of July because people were too honest and a lot of bad, bad uh, information about these legionnaires came out. So, you know, some of them are wanted for crimes in Canada and America, like rape and murder and lots of bad, bad things. A lot of them are neo-Nazis, imagine that. Um, so we weren't actually allowed to go and meet with them. Um, they offered to let us interview some French and American and I think British volunteers at their headquarters, but we couldn't really get there in time and didn't really think it was going to be a worthwhile experience, you know, a supervised interview. So everything that we did was sort of a unsanctioned, not really technically allowed. Yeah, I mean, we found some of these people just walking around, some of these people we found online um, and all of them wanted to keep their identity a secret because they're technically not allowed to talk to the press. And when it comes to Nazis and fascists coming from around the world into Ukraine. Is that a significant trend? I don't know if it's significant, but um, there was one American volunteer from Florida who was trying to explain to me that no, neo-Nazis aren't really a problem. And he was saying, you know, that these volunteer groups, they vet every person like so thoroughly, they check for tattoos. He's like, one guy was just kicked out last week for getting a wolf's angel tattoo. It's like, what the fuck did you get a wolf's angel tattoo when he's in Ukraine? Um, it, it's definitely a thing. And I, Saw a German guy with like a black sun tattoo. Um, so it's it's a thing. I don't know if it's a major thing. And I think that there are some, um, I mean, some of these battalions that have very strong neo-Nazi like histories have minorities from America and Canada and Europe who are fighting with them. And I think that they truly don't know. Like they truly didn't do the research. You know, some, some of these groups sort of renamed themselves a little bit. So they didn't do the research to know that, yeah, like four years ago, they were just posting swastikas all the time. You know, one of the things that was interesting and w was the experience that you had when you went to a, a town and you had to leave because uh, someone accused you of, of like siding with Armenians. Can you can you explain what happened there? So this was the Georgian National Legion base in, in Zaporozhye. Um, and yeah, like I said, this is a group. They, they say that there are a thousand people. Um, I haven't really seen any verification of that. Um, and they have a lot of foreign volunteers now too. So they are the, the best equipped battalion that we saw. And you know, that's all of the foreign battalions and the Ukrainian army battalions that we saw. They had Starlinks and you know, scar rifles and shell full of drones and grenade rounds. They were just very well equipped. But um, I guess that one of their officers asked to see my website and he looked at it and he was very angry. And he said, you support the Ukrainian, you support the Armenians. I said, no, I was just covering the war. He said, no, you support the Armenians. You're working for the Armenians. And he sort of walked off. He asked some questions. He asked my colleague, Corey, who's known me for 11 years, like, did she just find you in Ukraine now? Do you actually know her? It, it was very bizarre. But I, I, the, the inference he drew, I guess, was that if I support the Armenians, then Armenia is an ally of Russia, so I must be a Russian spy. And so that was very weird and very tense. And we had some arguments about Karabakh and then we left as quickly as possible and he had a car follow us basically until we were out of the town. And then after that, I was getting weird phone calls for the, the rest of my time in Ukraine. Like what, what kind of phone calls? I think that they were just trying to track me. This is what 
everyone I asked said. So it was just a bunch of random numbers calling me like constantly. Um, and, and for people who are watching who may not know about this story, can you just set up what happened? Like when Zelensky um, made this call for volunteers, how many people we think went? Part of the story is, I guess, the fact that we don't know how many people went or how many are there. Yeah, I think it was um, on the 26th or 27th of February, Zelensky issued a call and informed this international legion um, under the Ukrainian military, which was the official international legion of uh, volunteers from foreign countries to fight with the Ukrainian armed forces. And even though he said, you know, especially people with military experience, they got a bunch of people who had zero military experience. And um, from what the volunteers said, like they were basically just throwing them on the front lines in the beginning, like they were just dying in mass. Um, and they said that 40,000 went, which seems pretty unrealistically high. And a lot of them have already left at this point. So we have no idea how many actually went and how many are there. And they're not just all in this international legion group because there are a million little official and unofficial volunteer groups. And it's just, th there's no way to know. At one point, I think in, in May, um, they were still handing out guns to anyone who asked for them basically. And I think at some point, like they decided to try to get some oversight. So they asked for these weapons back and got none of them back. So it's, it's a clusterfuck. Where are those weapons going? And did you get any indication that they're going to the black market? This has been a major concern that by flooding this country, especially a very corrupt country with billions of dollars worth of weapons and being unable to track it after it crosses the border from Poland, that this advanced weaponry will be on the black market and in the hands of some really shady people. They are. And on the dark web, you can find Javelin missiles and NLAWs, and it mentions like they're great at taking out Russian tanks and 15,000, I think $15,000 for an NLAW missile I saw today on the, on the dark web marketplace. That's a good deal. Yeah. It's a good deal. Yeah. So, I mean, the SCAR rifles, grenade rounds, missiles, long range, short range, everything is on the dark web. Um, and we heard, I mean, th at the end of the day, they're not going to the Ukrainian soldiers. And that's the biggest thing. You know, we talked to Ukrainian soldiers in Donbass and it's like five guys and one AK-47 and they don't have ammunition and they don't have vehicles. And it's absolutely crazy given the amount of Western aid that has come their way that they're completely underarmed and unprotected. You tweeted out that video. So let's play that video and we can voice it over for people who are just listening to the podcast. For safety reasons, I won't name our location. We're holding this position. Another squad moved 300 meters. Our flanks are open. The amount of ammunition is limited. Our rifles are jamming all the time. If you can see the landscape, the large amount of trees, we can't use any kind of weapon like an RPG. According to documents, the National Guard has built everything. Only by documents, I insist. This is our bunker. You can't see it well, but it has five or seven or nine centimeters of wood. The trenches, we widened and deepened ourselves. Artillery is shelling us for hours. Tanks are hitting us for hours. For your understanding of the fortification constructions, this is our bunker. Understand, according to documents, this fortification construction should protect us from the artillery and tank shelling. The thickness of this wooden cover is very small. They're shelling us with tanks and smirch, so we dug these trenches. Russians would call them two sad holes. A bit farther, there are the same holes without any protection. 
They shell very intensively. All of this land is covered with holes from missiles. You quote someone, uh, Mike, a volunteer from the UK, who says both civilian and military aid goes missing. This country has a corruption issue that will inevitably affect the outcome of the war. Absolutely everything, javelin missiles, other missiles, vehicles, rifles, ammunition, grenades, all of it has been stolen and it's happening on both sides of the border. Lots of it's stolen in Poland, but it absolutely happens when it reaches Ukraine too. We're, how um, demoralized was this person who, who said that to you? I don't think he was demoralized. I mean, I don't think any of the foreign volunteers are really demoralized because they're still there. And right. it, it, ultimately, really, it, it's not their country. It's not their war. They can leave whenever they want. Um, I, the Ukrainian soldiers that we met were universally demoralized. Really, you just burn out, over-exhausted, and really have no hope. Right. So what what can they do? I would, that's another question I had. I mean, they've signed contracts, right? These people who are fighting there, the foreign fighters. What can they do? One of them talks about missing his dog, how he doesn't want to die there. Can he leave? What what happens if they want to leave? It's really unclear, actually, because it was well known that the International Legion was, and I think still is, making people sign these indefinite contracts that prevent them from leaving. But some of them say that they could leave if they wanted to. Some of them said they still have their passports. It, it's just really unclear. And I think that they were being a little cagey about that, about the real answer. And maybe they don't want to admit to themselves that they really can't leave now. But if they get caught, what happens to them? I mean, it, it, the border crossings, unless I don't think that they could successfully leave at an unofficial border crossing. So I think it would just be that the, the SBU, at the, the um, Ukrainian security service at the border would just stop them mm. and refuse them entry to whatever European country they were trying to cross to. And if they're captured by Russian soldiers, what happens to them then? They're treated as terrorists, basically, and um, probably put on trial and either sentenced to death in the case of the DPR or prison sentences. And that's different from the way they would be treated if they were Ukrainian nationals, or is it? Yeah, I think so because um, technically uh, the Geneva Convention doesn't apply to, to you know basically mercenaries, which is what they they're considered to the Russians. So okay. Ukrainian soldiers are still enemy combatants, and there's sort of an official sheen to that. The big thing we're being told now in the U.S. media about the Ukraine war is that these U.S. weapons, these HIMARS, are making a big difference. And that if Ukraine gets more, that could really turn the tide of this conflict in Ukraine's favor. Did you get a sense of that, whether these advanced U.S. weapon systems, these HIMARS, are making a difference on the battlefield? They also said that they're making a difference. Um, it's really a question of whether they're making enough of a difference, and it doesn't sound like they are. They're still so outgunned, and they're also out, outmanned, too. Um, one volunteer said it was like three Russian soldiers to every Ukrainian soldier, so... I don't think the HIMARS are going to be enough, but all of them, of course, repeated that they need more HIMARS and that it, it makes a difference because they're, you know, taking out Russian weapons stores, but it, it's not enough. Two of the people you spoke to mentioned friendly fire. Was that something that surprised you? And, and why is that happening at such high a rate? It absolutely surprised me, but it's apparently happening a lot. Um, and I think part of it is because all of these groups volunteer Ukrainian groups, volunteer foreign groups are sort of in the same areas. So they'll be away from the front lines and start shooting at each other. And it's just bizarre. But apparently, like that's most of the, the injuries have been shrapnel or friendly fire. It's just so unorganized and 
you are based in Europe, and right now we're hearing that you know Germany is imposing uh, plans to ration gas. They're even talking about returning to coal file uh, fired plants for energy because of the reduction of Russian energy as a result of their uh, strategy in Ukraine of, of siding with the U.S. in the proxy war. So Russia is cutting back gas and Europe's trying to cut off Russian gas too. What, what's your sense of how this war is impacting the rest of Europe beyond, beyond Ukraine and Russia? I mean, everyone is worried about the rationing and it, it seems like it's a strong likelihood that when winter comes, it's just going to be miserable here. Um, obviously everything has become more expensive. Uh, for a while we were dealing with shortages of like oil and flour and really normal things that seems weird to have a shortage of. So it, I think it's, everyone's just sort of waiting to see how bad it's going to get because clearly it's it's getting worse and there's no end in sight, so. Another thing that was remarkable in your piece was that, uh, you know, some people like Aaron, you constantly say that this is a proxy war that uh, is using Ukrainians as cannon fodder. And in this piece, we see uh, one of the volunteers recounts steel plates in lieu of armored plates capable of propelling gunfire were being given to frontline troops who had three days of training. They were sent out with one rifle between a few guys and given 120 rounds of ammunition. Their commander and I begged the upper command not to ship the guys out, especially with that gear, but they didn't listen. I've trained over 2000 Ukrainian soldiers and I guess at least half are dead. Was that something that people uh, mentioned besides this one person you interviewed? Every Ukrainian soldier mentioned this. Um, I actually got a video from a, a soldier in Donbass who's on the front line and uh, apparently the Ukrainian government were planning to make sort of a bunker and reinforcements and, and safety for the men who were sitting on the front lines for months at a time at this point. And he's just basically standing under a little teeny piece of wood saying the government said that they built this we have all this international money and we have nothing you know we've got two ak-47s between us and because of the dust from the russian shelling like they're jamming we have nothing uh this is across the board and also with vehicles because men are using their personal private vehicles in the war and when they're damaged by shelling or whatever the government won't pay to fix them the ukrainian army won't pay to fix them they're collecting funds to fix their own personal cars to take to the war Meanwhile, the Ukrainian parliament just approved a 70% raise across the board. So everyone, every parliamentarian gets 70% more, but you know, the soldiers don't have body armor and vehicles and guns. It's, it's really crazy how the aid has been just mismanaged and embezzled. And meanwhile, the Ukrainian government has imposed like a 70% cut in workplace protections for Ukrainian workers. So it's interesting that they're raising their own pay while cutting protections and and wages for Ukrainian workers. Yeah, I, I got a video from a soldier yesterday and he's standing, his car is smoking. It's like a 2010 Mitsubishi SUV or something. And smoke is just pouring out the back window. It's already like shot to shit. And he's saying, you know, fucking parliamentarians, you devils, I wish you were in our place. Like this is what we're dealing with and you're just giving yourselves more money. So can you tell us more about what you've seen in Ukraine, what it's like when you were there, and if you met any Ukrainians who want this war to end as opposed to want it to keep going? I think, I mean, most of the Ukrainians I met want the war to end, and most of them are really um, not optimistic about their chances of winning. 
And the soldiers in Donbass especially think that there won't be a Donbass in Ukraine for much longer. I mean, they think that uh, with the lack of resources that they have and the gross disparity between Russia's power and Ukraine's power, like it's just, it's going to fall very soon. Yeah, I think most of them want the war to end and local journalists, uh, one of them who was working as a fixer said that he was with maybe a dozen journalists from the US, the Netherlands, Germany. And he said all of them were shocked when they came and they saw how bad everything was and how corrupt everything was and how soldiers had nothing. Um, but none of that was reflected in their reporting when they got out and published their pieces. So it's it's like very well known there and it's very, people are very open and very realistic there, but it's just not getting past the filter of Western media, I don't think. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's in the interest of the West to pretend that Ukraine is doing very well, that everything is going fine, that they're, you know, on their way to taking back territories that Russia now has. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's in Western interest to do this. And it's almost like sacrilege, if you say anything to the contrary. Even if you point out the neo-Nazi influence in Ukraine, this is like sacrilege. You just can't say it. Right. You're a Putinist, right? If you say that, or you're like perpetuating or regurgitating Russian propaganda. Yeah, exactly. There have been polls that have been come out that say that a vast majority of Ukrainians don't want to negotiate an end to this war, don't want to give up territory. I have no idea whether to trust these polls, but Look, if you are being invaded, it makes sense that you wouldn't want to negotiate with your invader. Do you have a sense? I mean, do you think that these polls are accurate? I doubt it. I mean, it just based anecdotally on the people that I spoke to, you know, in many different cities in the country, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, because these people, it's not just the soldiers who are sort of like getting screwed up the aid, it's also the civilians. I mean, they have these refugee centers that are open. People can stay for one to three days. It's like 50 beds and one toilet. It's absolutely ridiculous. So people are just filtering back into their cities which are war-torn and besieged and shelled every day because they have no alternative. Like there's nowhere else for them to go. And of course they want the war to end whatever it takes for the war to end. So, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I, I really, the Ukrainian public opinion that I see in the Western media is not the same as the one that exists on the ground there. Why do you regret what you initially reported on in Syria? And maybe in this context, you want to tell the story, if you don't mind, about being held hostage there. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. That was uh, really interesting. And it's quite pathetic that you can't find this story uh, her journalism being reported on anywhere but her own website in the gray zone. Well, other people's pathetic state is our game because we get to bring voices like Lindsay Snell to people who otherwise might have missed her work. So right. thank you for being pathetic, everybody else, or almost everybody else. And uh, yeah. kudos to us for not being pathetic. But uh, being no, seriously, yeah. Lindsay's a really uh, impressive reporter and has gone to all these conflict zones directly and put herself at great risk as she talked about even being kidnapped in Syria and facing constant threats from people who don't like her reporting that exposes Turkish policies and the crimes against Kurds. And I really admire her for it. It's great to speak to her and hear what she has to say about all these different hotspots.
Yes. And make sure that you follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter is Lindsay Snell. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-S-N-E-L-L. And her website is ishgal.com. That's I-S-H-G-A-L.com. And make sure you sign up for Useful Idiots to get bonus content from this and many other interviews. There's a lot of stuff that we give you that we don't put on the main show. So if you want to support us, you can sign up there. Usefulidiots.substack.com. Yeah. And in fact, on this one, she talks about her experience being kidnapped. A bonus kidnapping story. Thanks so much. Uh, We will see you next week. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.